long ago, I had a, an evening meeting here, and so I went for an early dinner uh, at a diner. And uh, I am not an eavesdropper, but um, in a diner where the booths are close and it's just you know me and my chicken souvlaki, I can't help but hear the conversations happening behind me. In this case, it was a conversation between three. I would guess college guys, and uh, they were having a conversation about another guy who was clearly not at the table. Uh, he said they, they were saying uh, to each other, uh, "Ryan, what a loser! What a jerk! He deserves everything that people say about him and do to him. I don't know why anybody would ever want to be around him." And uh, there was two guys that were mainly doing all the talking. The third guy uh, was not saying anything until uh, I heard them refer then to the third guy. And they said, Mike, you seem pretty quiet. What do you say about this? Since after all, you seem to be the only one who really likes Ryan. Why do you hang out with him? I mean, what's your problem? Is this... The Jesus thing. And there was a pause. And then I heard uh, Mike for the first time. And Mike said, yeah, I guess it is. You see, uh, I want to pass on what Jesus did for me uh, to people like Ryan. And frankly, I want to pass on what Jesus wants to do to you as well. And there was a, a conversation that went on from there, and the three guys left. And after they left, I started thinking about Mike. I started thinking, you know, in God's eyes, Mike is a hero. It's a heroic thing that Mike did to defend his friend Ryan and his friendship with Ryan. And in my mind, it's even a more heroic thing uh, for him to explain how his desire to Stay in a friendship with Ryan, a guy who's maybe hard to love, and explain how it's connected to his friendship with Jesus. I wondered if Mike ever thought about how his simple heroism is kind of like a faith hero in the Bible named Noah. Uh, because the Bible talks about how Noah followed God as the lone believer in the whole world. How Noah was completely surrounded by people who thought his God thing was a little crazy. How Noah probably felt a little lonely and maybe felt like giving up. And I wondered if Mike felt that way sometimes too. I, I wondered if Mike sometimes feel like, you know, it would be so much easier to follow the crowd instead of Jesus. I wondered if Mike sometimes feels like giving up because why be a hero if nobody notices and nobody really cares? Believe it or not, uh, this diner scene relates to the five-week study that we begin today in Hebrews 11. And some of you know all about Hebrews 11. And some of you are saying, Hebrews 11, what is that, a coffee shop in the city, or what is that? No, Hebrews 11 is the 11th chapter of the New Testament book, Hebrews. And as the name implies, Hebrews is a, 
uh, is written to predominantly Hebrew followers of Jesus who were getting beaten up, tortured, forced from their homes, and worse. And I trust you are not suffering like this if you follow Jesus, but maybe as you follow Jesus, you have or you are experiencing hardships that leave you feeling weary and worn out and maybe even wanting to give up. Well, if that's you, listen up, because the message from Hebrews 11 is God's encouragement to you to stay strong, stay bold, and to keep the faith. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, what continues from this point uh, to the end of the chapter is a list of these commended ancients who are famous Old Testament Bible characters with brief descriptions for each one of how they lived in faith in God. The author lists hero after hero by name preceded by two words, by faith. So it starts, by faith Abel, and then we get a brief description of how Abel demonstrated faith, and then by faith Enoch, by faith Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, by faith Moses, by faith people passed through the Red Sea, by faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around the walls for seven days, by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, did not perish with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about, and at this point the author then launches into several more cycles of Bible heroes such that by the end of Hebrews 11, uh, the writer makes direct or indirect reference to between 30 and 40 Old Testament Bible heroes. And what all these 30-some Bible heroes have in common is this thing called faith. What made these men and women heroes in God's eyes? Faith. What makes me and you a hero in God's eyes, it is faith. So the big question is, what is faith? A good question that needs a good biblical answer because inside and outside the church, this word faith gets defined in ways that are all over the map. Uh, for some, uh, people refer to faith as religion. Any religion, Muslim faith, Mormon faith, Hindu faith, Buddhist faith, faith to some just means religion. And then other people refer to faith uh, particularly as being religious and specifically in a Christian way. There are people who say, oh, she's very, uh, she has a real faith because she goes to church all the time, she does the rosary all the time, she goes to confession to them. Faith is another word for being churchy or religious-y. And then speaking of churchy people, then there's also those who refer to faith as the power of positive thinking that makes God do stuff 
for you. Uh, so there are people who will say um, that when they take a second mortgage out that is twice as much as uh, they can afford uh, for a second home, they'll say that they're mortgaging their vacation home in faith. Um, in my opinion, these people are not in faith. They're kind of insane. And, uh, and so I'm telling you that in the Bible, God is not, motive, not manipulated by positive thinking. This is not faith. In the Bible, the definition of faith is not religion, not being religiously, and it is not positive thinking. The Bible's definition of faith is here in Hebrews 11. In fact, we're given the first part of Hebrew 11's definition of faith in the first verse, which says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is the first part of Hebrew, 11, Hebrew 11's definition of faith. Now, the Bible is infallible, so I would never try to improve on the Bible's teaching about faith. But, 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 I would like to try to improve on one word translated from, uh, from English, or to English from the Greek. My quarrel is with the English word hope, what is hoped for. Uh, because this word hope is a carryover from a 500-year-old English uh, translation, which was probably good 500 years ago, but today the word hope conveys the idea of a wish. Oh, I hope. And that is the opposite of what the author intends through his Greek word, elpis. A better translation would be the word trust, because trust is a faithful translation of this Greek word and conveys the author's intent, which is that faith is the opposite of a flimsy wish, how faith is a rock-solid belief in God and what God says. So I suggest this translation. Now faith is confidence in what we trust and assurance about what we do not see. So faith is a confidence in a, a firm trust in what God says and who God is, and faith is an assurance about what I don't see, meaning faith is trust about what God says about the invisible spiritual realities. Anyway, this first verse uh, gives us one part of Hebrews' definition of faith, to which we will be adding uh, throughout our five-week study in this chapter. Now, of course, I could give you uh, the full definition of faith as I see it uh, in Hebrews 11 right now, but that would be cheating. Uh, but you're saying, whoa, 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 it wouldn't be cheating, it would be helping, it would be giving me the full definition of Hebrews, of faith in Hebrews 11 so that I could absorb the teaching and actually apply it over five weeks. Wow. You are very convincing. So I would like to go ahead and give you this uh, definition of faith. Faith 
is God-given conviction, enabling me to walk with complete confidence regarding the unseen spiritual realities revealed in God's word. And some of you are saying, well, well, what's all this about spiritual realities? But you see, I'm skipping ahead. This is what we're gonna be talking about uh, for the next four weeks. We'll be talking about how biblical faith is confidence in the unseen spiritual realities described by God in his word. For instance, let's go back to Mike in the diner. What is the reason behind why Mike continues reaching out to Orion who is hard to love? It's because Mike is confident regarding unseen spiritual realities. Mike is confident that God loves Mike that God loves Ryan, and that it pleases God when Mike loves Ryan, even when he's hard to love, and that it's worth all of Mike's sacrifices to please God in this way. These are all unseen spiritual realities. You can't see God's love. You can't see God's smile of pleasure. These are all unseen spiritual realities. And what's the reason behind why Mike is willing to stand with Jesus even when it's unpopular among his friends? It's because to Mike, it is more important to please the invisible Jesus than to please these two visible friends having Reuben sandwiches right in front of him. That's faith. And it's faith that makes Mike a hero in God's eyes, just like Noah and the other 30-some heroes mentioned in Hebrews 11. And some of you are thinking, you're going too far. Uh, some of you are thinking, um, isn't it too extreme uh, to say that uh, Diner Mike is a hero, like Noah in the Bible is a hero? No, it is not too extreme, and I can prove it to you. I can show you that the whole purpose of Hebrews 11 is not to honor dead Bible heroes of the past. The purpose is to inspire you to be a living faith hero right now. But to show you this, I need to bring you to the first few verses of the next chapter, Hebrews 12, which says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the first sentence in Hebrews chapter 12 is, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, who are these witnesses? <laughs> these witnesses are the 30-some Bible heroes of chapter 11 who walked in faith and who are now cheering you on as you run with perseverance, the race marked out for you. Let's talk about this race. Because the writer of Hebrews gives us a few clues that might indicate the 
particular kind of race that he has in mind. The first clue comes from the last words of Hebrews chapter 11, which say this. These faith heroes were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Interesting words that seem to imply that for the Bible heroes, somehow the success of their faith race yesterday is connected with the success of my faith race today. And when we then can add that to one other clue, we get an idea. What's the other clue? The other clue is that when you study this list of some 30-some Bible heroes in Hebrews 11, you'll notice that the author is very careful to put them in chronological order. So when I put these two clues together, it seems to me that the author of Hebrews seems to be alluding to a specific kind of race, a relay race. The relay race, of course, dates back to ancient Greece before the writing of Hebrews, and even to this day is symbolized by this, a baton. Uh, I have a, of a baton right here, which uh, you know, reminds us of how a relay race is just handing the, this responsibility from one runner to the other. Uh, this baton was actually used in ancient Greece because uh, I uh, inquired about it when I bought it. And uh, that's what the kid at Target said. <laughs> like his exact words were, yeah, whatever. It's <laughs> enough for me. So uh, anyway, it seems that the Hebrew writer is saying that God's plan uh, in this world, to bless this world in Jesus, is uh, like a relay race that depends on ordinary people who become Olympic heroes through faith in God. Where not literally, but spiritually speaking, Abel runs his race uh, in faith to God and then hands the baton to Enoch. And then Enoch runs his faith race and hands the baton to Noah. Now you may be saying, does this mean that faith heroes, all they do is gonna run around in circles all their life? Uh, no. The writer of Hebrews would not be picturing laps like uh, in an Olympic game. Instead, the Hebrews author uh, would have in mind the historical origination where relay running came from, where the relay runner held a scroll and not a baton. The baton is a representation of what was originally a scroll because the relay race didn't start as a game. It historically started, as I understand it, as a royal communication system where a king would write his message, his command, his will on a scroll. And then he'd give the scroll to a runner who would race at great danger through hill and valley to a meeting place where he'd hand it to another runner. And all the runners would keep their eyes fixed on the person who would eventually 
receive the scroll. The one who had opened the scroll have the authority to open the scroll and fulfill the will of the king. So the Hebrew writer instead is saying that God's plan, uh, in God's plan, his heroes race with the baton of his loving word, his eternal will, where Abel runs his faith race and hands the baton to Enoch, and Enoch hands the baton to Noah, and Noah hands the baton to Abraham, who is the father of the Savior Jesus, who hands the baton to Peter, and James, and John, and Paul, who hands the baton to the church, and so that thousands upon thousands of Christ followers over thousands of years hand this truth of Jesus onto each other such that that after thousands of years comes the moment when you receive Jesus through faith and the baton is placed in your hands. And now the baton is in your hands and the question that all heaven is watching to answer And that is, what will you do with this baton? The question is, how are you going to respond to this responsibility? Will you be heroic in your opportunity, or will you be horrific in your apathy? Will you drop the baton to the thunderous groan of all the witnesses that have gone before you, or will you take the baton and run? Will you fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the receiver, who is the author of your faith. Jesus is the author of your faith, which means that your saving faith is not something you give to yourself, but Jesus gave it to you by enduring the cross and scorning its shame. Sure, maybe a family member or a college friend or a church worker led you to Jesus, but it's the author Jesus who led that person to you. And so it's like the author Jesus has placed this baton in your hands with the solemn charge that you, with conviction and with confidence, run your race with faith so that at the end of your race, you will see him face to face who has the authority to open the scroll and you put the baton in his nail-scarred hands and he says to you, well done, faithful servant. But Jesus, that's Jesus. But Jesus is also the perfecter of your faith, which means that the witnesses who are cheering you on the outside is matched with Jesus who is filling you with his indwelling spirit. But while Jesus fills you to win the race, like everyone else, every other hero on the list, only you can decide what you will do with this baton. Only you decide whether you will live to please the unseen Jesus or the people that you can see in this life. Only you can decide whether you will keep reaching out to that Ryan who is hard to love, whether you'll keep focused on the unseen Savior and keep giving, keep reaching, keep making a difference in his name, or whether you will dilly-dally and dawdle and get deluded and get discouraged and get distracted and give up. In a moment, you will receive the bread and cup of communion.
you'll receive these, uh, these elements. No one is going to prompt you in terms of when to take the bread and the cup. Just when you receive the bread, after you reflect for a while on what this means for you, after you reflect on the cup, take the bread, take the cup in your time. Uh, and when you take the bread and the cup, when you receive them, let it remind you that you also receive from Jesus a baton from his nail-scarred hands. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of your faith. Meet with him in the bread and cup and listen. Listen as Jesus calls you back from, uh, with the power of his Holy Spirit. As Jesus calls you to pick yourself up wherever you are on the race and get back to running in faith. As Jesus calls you to run with conviction in unseen spiritual realities, as Jesus calls you to leave behind your small plans and selfish dreams and become in his power nothing less than a hero of faith. Let's we wanna thank you for watching and listening to our sermons online, and we hope that uh, you will be inspired to live more like Jesus through these. Please check out blackrock.org for more information about our church. Know that you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And also uh, know that you can give uh, to BlackRock and to our ministry through PushPay, through our mobile app, and on our website. Your uh, donations and your support of our ministry allows us to have uh, these videos online and for us to impact our community.